0: Hey HBs! Welcome back to Heaving Bosoms, the podcast where two best friends giggle, snort, recap, and review their way through romance novels. This week, however, it is our great delight to interrupt our normal format and bring you an interview with the one and only Sarah (laughs) McLean. I got the chance to meet with her in Manhattan and talk about her newest book, as well as her writing process, her prolific reading, and so much more about romance in general. Enjoy! Okay. Hi, Sarah. Hi. (laughs) Thank you
1: for having me. Oh, my gosh. Um, It's kind of a dream come true. Oh, you're too kind. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) I'm super excited. I'm so excited to be face-to-face with you, too. It's very rare that you get to do an interview and look someone in the eye. Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, As soon as I was like, oh, I can definitely make New York City happen. Like, we got to do this face-to-face. So just to pull the curtain back on me a little bit, I've been fangirling... Hard for the past three weeks, like super stoked about this interview, and Yay! Um, and we actually opened it up because we have a we have a Facebook group that's like I a know. closed thing. Yeah, and I'm so, not a part
1: of it, but I know it <laughs> exists.
0: So I I reached out to them and I was like, hey guys, FYI, if you have any questions or anything, like let me know. And some of the questions I'm going to be putting in throughout the interview are actually listener questions. Yay, which is really exciting. My favorite kind. <laughs> So we are here because Wicked and the Wallflower is coming out on June 19th. It's true.
1: Oh, ah, it never gets less stressful. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. Has the past month been bonkers town or has it's it been less longer? It's less about that and more about the fact that like the moment the arcs start getting online and people start saying that they have them or they're reading them, you just oh. want to like cover your head and never leave the house. <laughs> Um, So the fact that I'm here with you is just an accomplishment. Oh, my gosh.
0: Well, I'm honored. And also, it's kind of nice to know that even someone of your success level and talent feels that way, too, sometimes. Well,
1: that's very common. Um, I feel that way all the time. I think it's just true. Um, (laughs) So I would love for you to tell me about the book. Sure. Uh, Um, So Wicked in the Wallflower is the first in a new series. mm -hmm. It's called The Bare Knuckle Bastards. And I came up with a series title first of all. Interesting. Before everything else, I was with a group of friends and we were talking about what makes a Sarah McLean series. And we were just talking about like how I always basically write the same the same kind of world over and over again. Mm. And we started talking about heroes because I'm always so into my heroes yeah. and how they're connected and how they live and how they exist in the world. And I was like, I don't know, Sarah McLean books are like books about bare knuckle bastards. And then we all just sort of eyes went Ah! wide around the room. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm writing that. (laughs) Yeah, Eureka. But I knew that I wanted to get away from the kind of moneyed aristocratic world. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to try something new and bring... The books into a world that I hadn't spent a lot of time in, yeah. although I've always kind of flirted around this kind of criminal element or this, mm-hmm. the darkness has always been much more interesting to me than the light. Um, right. Romance novels, I, I mean, guess. Absolutely. Bad bad boys are delicious. <laughs> um, and so I decided I was going to write a series set in Covent Garden, which is now quite posh, but then was right. really not. Right. And so I got really excited about the idea of a group of bastard brothers um and how they exist in the world and um I wanted to make them I I wanted to make them kings although to be totally honest it feels like that's not anything fresh the romance novel is always about a king of even some if some sort
0: perhaps yeah, yeah
1: even if he runs even if he's a mechanic or an right. accountant or whatever he's like the king of the accountant he's <laughs> or, he's the most talented exactly he's <laughs> Always super competent, mm-hmm. super focused, super talented. And so I wrote this, I started to conceive of the series about basically kings of the darkness yeah. um, and queens. Right. So I'm really excited because I'm really excited about um, setting a world, setting a book in a place that I've never written in before. Right. I'm really excited about writing about heroes who aren't aristocrats uh-huh. and a brotherhood. that Brotherhood isn't really... The right word because there's a sister too, but a kind of group of people who have pulled themselves up mm-hmm. by their bootstraps and really made themselves into royalty without any of the trappings or privilege of those things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I get to write about like the London docks and prostitutes and thieves and
0: right well in the the code of thieves because although I um I I did get guess what guys I got an advanced copy (laughs) be super jealous although they are criminals and although Mm. devil your first character is dark and dangerous and all of that he still does have a code sure
1: yeah that's the he's a noble scoundrel Right, right right so there's a that's part of it. They're they're smugglers. The Bare Knuckle Bastards are smugglers. Yeah. Um, two brothers and a sister, although they're not. The brothers are half brothers and the sister is not related to them, but they've lived with her their whole life. Yeah. For, um, for all intents and purposes. Two brothers and a sister, and they are, they run several kinds of criminal elements in, um, in Covent Garden. So Uh they run a smuggling ring. They're ice smugglers. So they bring alcohol and tobacco and other forms of vice into London using ice ships and Grace their sister is she is a brothel owner but she runs kind of a magic mike double xl kind of brothel Ooh. where the women are the clientele and the men are the employees Oh I dig that um yeah that was really fun and and there are a, a variety of different corners of Covent Garden that I haven't Explored, mm-hmm. our readers won't see here, but it's sort of like Hogwarts. <laughs> there are lots Ooh. of rooms of requirement <laughs> in Covent Garden, so I'm really excited. That's very, very cool. Well, we do have a lot of
0: research questions coming up, so okay. I'm excited to hear about the way that that your research sort of changed because your writing has it has gone, like you said, from the very like stratified ballroom the idyllic setting that we either expect or were trapped in a lot of times in historicals to a much more London from the view of the masses Mm -hmm. which at that time is you know mostly horrifying um (laughs) sure and it's it's really neat so was there anything in particular that made you want to start exploring that theme of of beauty and darkness this time
1: my first romance, my, you're absolutely right. The The first romance was very ballroom focused. Mm. Um, I grew up re- reading romance novels yeah. and I still read a book a day. Um, and I think one of the things that historical romance has given to readers is this very clear idea of a rarefied society and a rarefied world mm. when the truth is that the lion's share, I mean, an immense majority of people. Um, during that time and now are not aristocratic. Exactly. Right. And they don't have a ton of money. Yeah. And they don't go to balls every day. And they're, again, really noble. And they have really rich, fascinating lives. And so I think as I started writing over the years over the last decade I've been writing for almost 10 years you know you start picking up research books or or reading reading articles and suddenly you are down a rabbit hole about you know dock workers yeah. or um you know how they how they get ice or the history of the lock pick you know the these kind of mm-hmm. things that suddenly become really fascinating and then you become less and less interested in the wallpaper in the ballroom sure absolutely um, and more and more interested in the people who built the ballroom or the people who um, might be able to afford the ballroom but can't get an invitation oh, into it. Yeah, absolutely. Largely because I think that's where, for me, I, I, like, I think the world right now is very much about those people, about... Like class and and society, yeah. the way societies stratify and how difficult it is to move from one rung to the next. Absolutely. And it's always been that way. So mm-hmm. I'm really, I tend to just write whatever's happening in my world. And right now that's what I'm interested in.
0: Excellent. So another theme that I noticed in the book is one of power, both reclaiming it or realizing your power Um, And those are both big, big themes in the novel. Was that like a natural pairing with your idea of exploring darkness or was that
1: inspired by something else? Well, I think in a romance, it's always about, like I said earlier, it's always about kings and queens, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So power is always on display. Yeah. I think right now... I've always written about power struggles between – especially between the sexes, the sort of women, ber- the, the male-female struggle. Um, power is one of those things that is is zero-sum, it mm. feels. Mm-hmm. And so there is a certain sense of if I have it, someone else doesn't. Sure. Um, and I start – and I get really excited about interpersonal relationships where power is, of course, a piece of the puzzle always. Absolutely. And – Every romance I've ever written has been about equal. Has it been about that sort of movement toward equal, equal partnership and equal Definitely. power? And what I love to do is play with, you know, who has the power, um, who thinks they have the power sometimes, sure. versus who really does. Invariably, is the heroine who has all the power, right? <laughs> and so, of course, it's about it's. It becomes a part of it in in this particular story because. Mm-hmm. The hero is kind of obsessed with titles and the Mm -hmm. aristocracy. And the premise of the series is very much about, well, it is about three brothers who had to vie. They are the bastard sons of the Duke. Right. And um, because reasons. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because you'll find out. That come out in the (laughs) book, um, they are made to compete for the title that none of them are born into. Right. Um, But all three of them conceivably deserve. So the title becomes everything. Or does it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and then another another thing we were, we're talking about, you know, the heroine having power and all of that. In this one, I feel like another theme that's big for her is worth. Well, and actually, I guess big for him too, right? Because he, as you said, he's just as not entitled to this title and yet he didn't get it because reasons. Right. And with her, she has been Outcast, sort of, for no reason. Mm -hmm. She's an aging spinster at twenty-seven, and she really sees a lack of worth in her plainness.
1: Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think Felicity. Felicity's the heroine of the book, and yeah, we've all been in situations like Felicity's, where we were once on the inside of a circle or an. World and now we're not. Mm. Now we're outside looking in. Yeah, and oftentimes in fiction, we see a deciding event and uh, something happens in the book that pushes the person from the inside to the outside. But in reality, it's not ever really like that. Sometimes it's almost like one day you wake up and you're not on mm-hmm. the inside of the circle. Yeah. Um and sometimes that's because of age and sometimes that's because of position and sometimes that's because of money and sometimes that's just because, right? right? Because reason. Because of a mood. Exactly. Sure. And um we've all been there and I think women are often there. And I was really interested in playing with that as mm-hmm. an identity, as sort of a the struggle with that, especially when there is no inciting incident for it. Like yeah. you have to sort of come to terms with yourself and understand yourself again. Um, and for me, that that's very much what Felicity is doing through the whole book is trying to understand who she is in relation to the world where she was born, the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. She was born to a title versus um, who she might yeah. want to be once she gets a chance to sort of unlock the door and walk into this kind of darker, edgier, more powerful, more... Uh, valued community, right? Because absolutely, the thing about the aristocracy that comes up over and over again in all of my books, I think, is yeah. this idea of: um, is there, what is the value of being titled mm. versus the value of being a self-made person or a sure. person who builds a thing or makes a thing or creates a world? So certainly that and. Of course, the series, the book, and the whole series is very much about worth. It's about what makes us worthy. Mm. Like, is a name enough? Right. And I think we see over and over again in the world around us that a name is not enough. Uh, education is not enough. A uh, a bank account is not enough. Like what makes us worthy is something very different and untouchable. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, inalienable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suppose. Exactly. So I love the idea that you came up with the the name of the series first and then everything because we had a lot of questions from listeners about, you know, are your ideas sort of a uh, an epiphany in the middle of the night like Wordsworth or is it something that you really craft? You know, there's this whole because from my point of view, what you do is goddamn magic. Like <laughs> I don't I don't know how you do it. I think you you and um you know the writers who are in your stead are just absolutely incredible. So from a reader's perspective, it's kind of nice to pull the curtain back a little bit. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So Aaron wanted to know how you decide to craft your themes and your settings for the series and like what goes into it. So was it different for
1: each of your series? I think so. I mean, I think the first... Your first series, and I mean this is I, this is from my own experience, so other people may feel differently, but my first series, I was really writing in the dark. Like mm. I, I had written nine rules to break when romancing a rake, yeah, and I had written kind of the book I wanted to write yeah. because I didn't have a book deal, I didn't have a contract. I just wrote a book that I thought would be fun to read. And you wrote your first three while working a full time job, right? I did. Yeah, that's amazing. And when I sold nine rules to HarperCollins to Avon. My editor said, "Well, we want three. and I said, "Well, but there's only one." I don't have those. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. and, and I said, "There's only one," and she said, "No, there are three. Oh. You have, you have three here." And uh-huh. I was like, "What? Who? Uh-huh. Where?" <laughs> um, and so my hero had a twin brother, and yep. they had a half sister. Yeah, and, and Juliana. Sure. They here. The my editor was like, "Those are your books. Go figure it out." <laughs> and so you know, for that first series, I was very much like, well, I guess I'm writing three then. Um, but even in those like early books now, I don't ever reread my books, yeah. but I think back on them. And I think like 10 Ways to Be Adored When Landing a Lord was very like, was a really pointed like kind of political, like lower P book yeah. about like women in the world. And, and 11 Scandals had its own sort of like politic. And right. so I feel like, those I wrote kind of not knowing what I was doing. And then when I sat down and I wrote the Rules of Scoundrel series, which is my casino series, like that I knew I had set up. I mean, if you've read that series, you know I had to have known Yeah, absolutely. What I was doing with that series. And I was really again fascinated by like the fallen aristocrat, the the person who is born into one thing but has to make himself something else. Mm-hmm. And I've always been interested in that sort of. I, there's never been a book I've written that hasn't sort of been about like what you are in the world versus what you are for real. Yeah, absolutely. But to Erin's question, I don't plot my books. I really? don't. Um, I don't. I know the endings always, but never how I how to get there. That's and amazing. So I really do write sort of. In- <laughs>
0: That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. not a good
1: way to write. You should definitely <laughs> not do it my way. You should do it someone <laughs> else's way who will be interviewed on another podcast. <laughs> um, but there is a very real sense for me of um, – so everything gets into it. Uh, you know, my husband, my hero is a nice smuggler, right? My mm. husband is convinced this is because – we have a four-and-a-half-year-old who's obsessed with Frozen. Oh. And so, like, I was writing while she was watching Frozen. Yeah. And I was like, well, clearly, he deals in ice. I mean, <laughs> it,
0: it gets into your psyche. Let's be real.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. So, it's interesting because everything, every conversation that you have, you just, I think when you're a writer, when you're any kind of creator, like, yeah. you're just open, you have to be open to the world, and then random things happen, and you think, well, I'm going to put that in a book, mm-hmm. or that will suit my character right now, or... hmm but it's not an; it doesn't make it easy it makes it really kind of ridiculous <laughs> and it makes it the experience or the process like what what do you yeah, mean Yeah, <laughs> I mean often oftentimes I you know finishes a chapter and I think well I have I'm absolutely nowhere you okay. know and I'm 350 pages into a manuscript and absolutely nowhere yeah. so to her question about themes you know, they say every writer has a core story. And I think I absolutely do. I I tell this story of identity over and over and over again. And I don't know what that means about me and who I am. But but I certainly don't ever think about it. And often by the time I'm 400 pages into the manuscript, that's really when I start to understand what I'm trying to do. Wow. Um, Which means that my revision process is very massive. Sure. Um, because I often don't know the story I was telling until I get myself to the end and then I think, oh, that's it. And then right. I have to go back. And then and you can weave more elements figure in. out. Sure. You know, and usually it's all there. The signposts are all there, but I just didn't see them. Right. That's it's like very it's almost cool. like reading a mystery, but it's my own book. So I love that. Um, where, you know, it was all there on the page and I just had no idea. Yeah. And then I have to go back and figure out how to tell how to show readers where it is.
0: Okay, so is that is that the same process for characters? Because your characters are so defined and everybody has such a a vivid backstory. Everybody has their own, I don't know, cross to bear, if you will. Do you go through the same development process that way? My heroes almost always have a secret.
1: Mm-mm. And <laughs> And usually I don't know what that secret is until it's out on the page. Which is why, you know, anybody who's read really more than one of my books knows that around kind of 75, 80% of the way through the book, the secret is revealed. Whatever the, like, baggage of the hero is, is revealed, like, fully revealed. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I'm just as surprised as you are. um, And then I sort of have to go back and figure out... I wrote a book called One Good Earl Deserves a Lover, hmm. and it was – when I started writing it, it was my heir and spare book. It was it was my Prince Harry book. Oh, okay. Um, and I wrote this, like, tall ginger, this tall, handsome ginger, who was a spare, um, meaning he was the second son. Sure. And he uh, begins with him discovering that his brother is dead and that he is now the heir mm-hmm. to the – I think he wasn't – yeah, he wasn't Earl. It's in the title. And so um, – and so he becomes heir, he's heir to the earldom, and then um, the book begins, and he is earl, but hates himself for it, like, and and I don't know why, right? Like, and I sort of was, exp- I was really interested in again this sort of identity question is like, what must it be like to be born knowing that you're just there as like a stopgap, a
0: backup, sure, and. Um,
1: then suddenly here you are and now you have to live the life that you were never intended to live right. um, and your life, which you thought was yours, is no longer yours. Mm. And I'm even more fascinated by this question now like <laughs> as you look at the royal wedding, like with the royal wedding like oh, around yeah. us. Oh, yeah. Um, because I think it's really interesting, but um, I had no idea over the course of writing that book that. 75% of the way through, he was going to tell the heroine that he killed his brother. And then I was like, wait, Whoa! what? <laughs> so I, you know, once he says to her, like, I killed my brother, that's the end. I think it's the end of a chapter. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, huh. <laughs> right. What does that mean? Yeah. And then, and how know, does so that shadow then I had to go back through? Right. And of course, he's not a murderer. He did not yeah. murder his brother, but.
0: It's probably He'll be
1: very responsible for the death of his brother because of reasons yeah. um, that you know now because you've read if you have read the book or if you have not, you will know. But once he said that on the page, I was like, well, now I know. Like now we have a ball game, right? Huh. And then in the revision, it becomes a much the book becomes more complex and the characters become more nuanced in revisions. Okay. For me. Like my first. Your first step. The first at it. draft is always kind of hot garbage <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And then, you know, it all sort of starts to That is so fascinating. Coalesces by the end. And then the revision is very much about that first like 300 pages just getting it right.
0: I love that. So talk to me about research going into all of this. And has that changed since you've gone from the ballroom to the the streets if you will
1: i do more research now yeah um, okay because i've read like i said romance novels for my whole life and so there's something to be said for nearly 50 years of historical romance is kind of telling us one thing yeah. about what what the regency was like what the 1800s in england and the aristocracy was like that isn't actually really correct yeah. um <laughs> But that doesn't change the fact that many of us who cut our teeth on reading romances feel really comfortable writing a ballroom scene, right? Like, sure, we know what's what the music is and how it goes, and that there's a balcony and that there's an (laughs) orchestra and that there's, you know, tepid lemonade. There's always (laughs) tepid lemonade in my book. Yep. I used to do this thing where anytime I was, like, stuck, I would send my characters to the opera because I knew there was always an opera, right? Like, you could go to the opera house. It would be very dark. There would be a box. They could sit in it, right? You know? And now I'm not writing that, although there's, I think, one ballroom scene or two ballroom scenes in this book. Yeah. But they're very much ballroom scenes from the outside. Exactly. Not from the inside. Right. And so I started to get really interested, like, Spent a lot of time thinking about roofs and like rooftops and like how people move around London if they don't want to be seen. Talked about ice, like how ice gets moved into this into the city, the maps. I spent so much time looking at maps and like tide tables and like things that are not interesting necessarily to most people. But it was very important to me that when I like started working in this new world, I was going to do it justice. Uh And this is going to sound like this is going to sound pretty cheesy, but get it. (laughs) <laughs> but do the people justice too in that world oh absolutely right? i mean london was built there's a line in the book that oh, so cheesy um whatever i'm, I'm already it's there not, I'm, though, I'm saying it. it's not so, plus that is my wheelhouse <laughs> there is a line in the book where i think the heroine says uh where she talks about the difference between the people who run the city and the people who built the city Ooh. And this idea of like these noble men and women who built the city who will never be remembered versus these people who have all the money and like live in their rarefied world in their ivory tower who will always be remembered but don't understand what the city is. And for me, that's what this book is. It's very much about like exploring that world, showing those people on the page and, and telling a story that... That is about them, too. Absolutely. And
0: I really appreciated that because I feel like those people were disenfranchised enough during
1: their lives, (laughs) during the time, that they don't need to be now as well. And I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that, look, I mean, she was born into the aristocracy. The three heroes of this series are vying for, have vied for a dukedom. One of them is a duke, holds the title of duke. Um, so it's not like I'm totally fallen away from that oh, ar- no. aristocratic world. But um, this series is very much about like paying homage to the working class, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All right. During your research rabbit holes, are there any like
0: badass historical women that you've come across that you're just like, yes? There
1: are <laughs> so many. There are so many amazing women in yeah. the world and not even people who are... That far out of the public eye, I mean, I think about, I just kind of became really fascinated by Ada Lovelace, Mm -hmm. who many people know about Ada Lovelace Mm -hmm. because she is widely referenced as the world's first computer programmer. First of all, a lot of people don't know this about her, that she was the first, that like the first computer programmer was a woman. Really? I wish that was common knowledge. No, a lot of people. My husband is in tech, and so he, of course, like... Knows all about yeah. Otta Lovelace, but I didn't know anything about yeah. her until maybe a decade ago. And then on top of it, I didn't know this until about a year ago, but Otta Lovelace is Byron's daughter. Shut Lord what? Byron's. I know. And Lovelace isn't her last name. It's her title. She was Otta Countess Lovelace. No. Oh, yeah. my God. Is this not the most bananas thing? Like, how Mind. is there no movie about this woman? That's bonkers. Yeah. She's... Amazing! Oh, my God. She's amazing because on top of everything else, like, she, like, lived this remarkable life. Right. She hung out with all these scientists and mathematicians. Her mother was a mathematician um, who was, like, crazy in love with Byron. Byron, of course, was, you know, the world's greatest Lothario. Uh Uh-huh. Total scoundrel. Married this woman and she got pregnant. She's Byron's only legitimate child. She birthed Ada... And when she was six months old, Byron left her mother. Whoa. Never, never divorced her, just left. Yeah, sure. Took off. Sure. And Byron, we now know, had a lot of, you know, presumably, I mean, we don't know because he was never diagnosed, but like it's pretty clear that he had um, some significant mental illness. Yeah. Um, her mother, and on top of it, he was, he just, he slept with anything that moved, right? So he was like a complete scandal. Yeah. Her mother was so horrified by her experience with this horrible poet, that she insisted she would not raise her daughter to care about literature or the arts. (gasps) And so she raised Ada, like, basically with hours and hours every day of math and science training in 1815, right? Oh, my God. So Ada became a mathematician, and she became a scientist, and she started hanging out with scientists and mathematicians, and she wrote the first computer program, for the babbage machine which was right. ostensibly the first computer yep. um and then married a an earl and she like Otta lovelace cleaned up she looked <laughs> great there are portraits of her like wearing gorgeous gowns uh-huh. like with her hair all done and you know like she's just run from her her lab absolutely like, she's, she's been scribbling all day and now she's you know has to be sit for a portrait she's been revolutionizing yeah. the world yeah and like <laughs> it's just amazing to me that this character existed in the regency and i've seen i've read not an exaggeration, like four thousand Regency novels, and I've never seen Otta Lovelace on a page of them. Yeah. Like, and I. And how is there not like that's a biopic? Changing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You'll all see Otta Lovelace on the pages of my book. Excellent. I don't know. I don't know how there isn't there ha- how there isn't a biopic. I don't know how we haven't told her story. I mean, yeah. I th- I mean, I do know how because absolutely, women, absolutely. But I think like. Whenever any writer, any reader writes to me and says, like, your characters are too feminist, they do such, they do too crazy, like, their behavior is too crazy, their behavior is, um, completely incongruous with the time. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's, that's absolutely fucking false. Incorrect. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think what's really fascinating to me is even as simple as, I mean, we know things like Mary Wilson, from Crash wrote the, vi- On the vindication of the rights of women in the Mm -hmm. 1700s, right? Like, feminism existed. It wasn't called feminism, but it was there very clearly. Like, the the early threads of it were there. But when we talk about romance novels, Elizabeth Bennett is super feminist. Like, it's pouring down rain… Jane is sick at Pemberley. She's completely super feminist. Is it Pemberley, I don't even know. Her sister's yeah. sick, yeah. like across the across the moor. Mm-hmm. It's not a moor. I don't know. Just go <laughs> with it, you the guys, place, guys. And like, and she, you know, put, lifts up her skirts, like ties on her boots, and marches herself yeah. across like a muddy everything to basically go and like rescue her sister from these terrible people. Heck yeah.
0: Oh, I don't need the carriage, Father.
1: <laughs> no, just she's like, I'm gonna walk, walk. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I just. I love it. Like, I love that, like, the mo- the moment, the moment that we always talk about where, you know, you must r- allow me to tell you how much I ardently admire and love mm. you. And then, and then Elizabeth is like, no, thank yeah. you. You're horrible. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, these kind of things are feminist acts. Like, this is a feminist Absolutely. text. Mm-hmm. And the idea that readers would say, well, your characters are too feminist. Like, it feels to me like my character is... Equally as feminist as Elizabeth Bennet, yeah. right? Like, Lizzie does not need Mister Darcy, right? Even a little bit, right?
0: Yeah, um, and not until he
1: proves himself worthy. Sure,
0: does she think that's
1: a good idea? Sure. So there are tons of tons of badass women, but that this was my ode to Ada Lovelace, who oh. I think is unsung.
0: I love that. Well, and that is, that's really interesting because one of the questions we did have from Becky, one of our readers, was like, how much importance do you place on historical accuracy when you're writing? And then a lot of the other questions that we had layered in were about feminism. And I feel like, you know, that we do have this idea of the time because women were a lot more hmm, confined, if you will, but it didn't mean that those women
1: didn't exist. And I think there's a big difference. I think there is. Yeah. I, I don't think that I have no trouble with the merging of feminism and historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't lose, lose sleep over him. Mm. Good.
0: <laughs> well, and I think that comes out in your books, too, because none of it seems outrageous at all. Right. right. And I, I never knew if that was just because of my own personal politics and feelings about things. Right. But I mean, you know, Callie and Nine Rules, we we reviewed that for the pod already. I'm mm-hmm. like, Callie and Nine Rules is my queen. I'm into it. Well, you're very kind. Yeah. <laughs> She's,
1: I mean, but Callie, and Le- I mean, I do think that there are, of course, things that you have to deal with, right? Like, I have mm-hmm. to get rid of chaperones on the regular, mm-hmm, right? Because, mm-hmm. sure, you do an, have aristocr- to talk about it. an aristocratic female would have a chaperone, yeah. so why the hell is this person alone in a carriage in Covent Garden, right? Right, 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 right. But that's such a minor detail that it feels to me like it, once I say it, yeah. like, then we can all agree that the chaperone is gone. And certainly... People have ditched their chaperones for millennia. Oh yeah. Um, absolutely. So and I do think, you know, when we talk about feminism and and historical accuracy, I think we forget that also there were a lot of men who were feminist. Yeah. And were kind of allowing, especially men who didn't have sons. Yes. Were allowing their daughters to allowing. Um, but we I mean, yes, turning a blind eye sure, sure, to sure. their daughter's world. So I think, you know, shout out to the dads of daughters throughout history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and to go back to your earlier pre- prejudice shout out, you know, Mr. Um Mr. Elizabeth, where's their last name? Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett. The end. Mr. Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah. Let's just call him that. I just That's like that him better. <laughs> Mr. Elizabeth is like, you know, I mean, I know that you'll have more pretty carriages than Jane, but is he going to make you happy? Because I don't care how much he makes. Yeah.
1: This is your decision at the end of the well, day. Well, and he's so, he finds Mr. Collins like so insufferable. Oh, yeah. Like, you cannot marry him. Yeah, absolutely. So there's that too.
0: Yeah. Okay, so. Speaking of feminism Mm. and community, actually, because, well, so you've become sort of a, a go to for advocacy for romance being legitimate and also a face of how feminism can work in romance and how it does all the time. I love PS that EW called you uh, furiously graceful.
1: Graceful gracefully uh, furious. furious. Yeah, that's my epigraph, uh, my epitaph sorted. Oh my god! In Ingr- <laughs> I mean goals. I told my husband I was like I want that on a tombstone. Yes.
0: <laughs> oh. So, did you have a tribe like a writing tribe,
1: or is that something that you is that something you have now? I have beloved people who are writers. Um, I started, my first book actually was a YA romance called The Season. Yeah, came out in 2009. And in YA, there are these annual, YA treats publishing like uh, almost like graduating classes. So um, there are private loops online for all of the people who debuted, say, in 2018. Cool. Um, And I was part of a group that, Debut uh, for debut YA authors in 2009, and my dearest friends came from YA because of that. Mm. Um, My closest friend is Carrie Ryan, who writes zombie novels. She reads all of my books before my editor does even. Awesome. And she just, she's somebody who just understands what I'm trying to do, and we write not at all the same kind of book, Mm -hmm. but. Um, sometimes you just need somebody who gets what you're trying to do. When I Golden Girls, which I fully intend to do, I intend to do it with Carrie and Sophie Jordan, who is also who is a romance novelist, yeah. but also writes YA novels. And Sophie too is just a great person. You know, we love bonkers books. We yeah. love big conflict and strong characters, and we all cut our teeth on those like big epic romance novels in the in the late 80s and early 90s, right. and we, our sensibility is very much that sensibility. Uh-huh. You know, like if you asked me if you could write any book at all, and like if you could write like anyone, I would tell you that I wanted to write like Judith McNaught because she writes these sort of big epic sweeping romances uh-huh. where at the end the heroine is, you know, running across a war, a battlefield, yeah. and like gets pinned to the hero with an arrow through his armor and it's just bananas. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you're just in it and eating popcorn and turning pages mm-hmm. and that's all I want, Yeah, right? So they are my tribe, uh-huh. um, and I'm very lucky to call a lot of other people sort of ancillary members to that tribe. Yeah, and they're all women. Yeah, and we all do our best to hold each other up, and that's that's what's most important right now. Oh, I
0: think completely. That's been that's been one of the neatest things actually about starting the podcast, and because it started as just my friend Erin and I didn't talk enough, and we were like, we have to build ourselves a reason to right. talk all the time. That's so awesome. why don't we just start a thing, see how it goes? If one person listens, that will be amazing. Um
1: I love that. Yeah,
0: and then but since then, it's grown into just this incredible like people from all over the world yeah. reaching out and, you know, talking about mental health and talking about support, talking sure. about the way that romance is one of their not only diversions, but also a way to watch women and be inspired by women who overcome huge obstacles and make their own happy ending, you know?
1: And I think romance has always been this really interesting corner of publishing because it's so huge Mm. as an industry and it's so private because we have all been taught to sort of be private about the fact that we read (laughs) it. Yeah. (laughs) Less you and I and more others. Right, yes. right, right. <laughs> and, but we have, I mean, there's a constant sense of like, you you think twice before you tell, te- tell people what you're reading when you read a romance novel, mm-hmm. when you're reading a romance novel. And as silly as that is, it's reality, right? Yeah. I host a Facebook group online. There are about 6,000 members and they are voracious romance readers and it is an incredibly active group. I mean 30 to 40 posts a day mm. from people, I mean huge long discussions about the genre, about yeah. the books about books that they love about and then suddenly about their lives, you know, about, you know, their husband somebody's husband dies or right. somebody's pet dies or somebody is struggling with school or job or their children and the group becomes much more than a group about books it absolutely. becomes a group about being women in the world. Absolutely. And what's interesting about this to me is that we live in this time where romance or community online is so easy to find. Mm. Um, and we can find, you can find somebody who's into anything with you. Yeah. Um, and, but when I was growing up, I used to read paperback romances that I would take out from the library and at the back of every one of these books There would be kind of a list of like markings, like Sanskrit markings. And everybody who read them, you know, because romances are also similar, the titles are the same or the covers are the same. And so it's hard to keep them apart. Like people would mark them in the back with their, you know, little right. And that symbol meant that they'd read that book before.
0: Oh, and
1: these books were kept in the dark, in the back corner of the library. Like nobody ever went into the romance section yeah. except for all the people who went into the yeah. romance section. And they could always find their books. And then in my library, you would put if you loved the book, you would put an exclamation point like at the bottom of the page. And the more exclamation points on the on that page, the better the book was. It was oh, like Goodreads whoa. beta. Oh my god! Right. And I told this story to a group of librarians and I was like, I don't know if this is real, but this is what, this was real in my library. And I don't know if this transcended Lincoln, Mm. Rhode Island, where I grew up. And afterward, I found out that, of course it did. It's everywhere. Every, you know, every library system in America has, like, women who mark these books and they do it with joy. They do it. Yes, absolutely. Carefully. And they won't break the spine, but they won't mark the back of the book. And... It's amazing to me, like this community of romance readers having these conversations about women and love Mm. and happiness has been going on, you know, for as long as the genre has existed. Yeah. So I'm really proud to be a part of it.
0: Oh, completely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. One of our listeners wanted to know how much of your feminism in your books is like a concerted effort in the writing process or is it just you? coming out on
1: the page i'm afraid it's just (laughs) me that's what i thought um it's there's nothing there's no intent oh yeah yeah it's you get what you pay for (laughs) i
0: (laughs) I dig it is there a character that's most like you that's a
1: great question i think they're all kind of like me Mm. in some way or another i think i'm probably more my heroes than i am my heroine love it though i do have crooked fingers like pippa and one good earl deserves a lover (laughs) No, I think I am definitely more of my more of my heroes than I am my heroines. But I think, um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I feel like I'm probably a little bit Alec from A Scott in the Dark. Oh. And a little bit Felicity. I might be a little Felicity from Wicked and the Wallflower. Okay. She, right now, she's who's really present for me. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah.
0: Oh, man. Okay, so I would like to transition to talk to you about Sarah McLean, the reader, too, mm, because I would love to do that. You just dropped a bomb on me at the beginning. I don't know if you noticed, but you
1: read a book a day, madam, as I well do. as writing full time well that's my joy oh right my God. I mean i write I write romance to pay for my reading romance <laughs> habit,
0: yeah. How do you... Are you just a really fast reader? I'm a really fast reader.
1: (laughs) That's because I've been reading romance novels since I was like 10. Mm -hmm. And anybody who reads romance novels a lot reads fast. Yeah, of course. Because you blow through them. Uh And thank God for self-publishing because there's always something to read. Mm -hmm. And I'm always really excited to try new things. And, you know, books... I'm... Anybody who recommends me a book, I'm going to probably download it right away. That's cool. At least try it, right? Yeah. I don't, I read about a book a day, but I am also not an, I must finish this book. Oh, okay. So I, if I don't love it, I probably won't finish it. Mm-hmm. But I sure love most of them. That's amazing. I can always, I'm, I'm pretty good at finding, it, finding value in almost all of them. That's very cool. But, you know, some people knit. (laughs) Right. I don't knit. That's right. I basically read.
0: (laughs) I dig it. And do you remember your first romance
1: novel? Of course. Oh, tell me all about it. Do you remember your first romance novel? Uh, We had a whole, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, hang on (laughs) because I want to know. Tell me. Tell me. My first romance novel was Jude Devereaux's uh, The Black Lion, Mm -hmm. which is the first in her Montgomery series. It's medieval. Okay. The hero is... The Black Lion, Ooh. a medieval knight, mm-hmm. and he is like terrifying. He wears black armor and rides a black horse and is black everything, uh-huh. black hair, black eyes, uh-huh. black, black everything. <laughs> the epitome of dark and handsome. <laughs> he is terrifying, and uh, it begins, and the heroine is like 17 and perfect in every way, mm. and she's has fiery red hair and brilliant green eyes and... She is perfect to her. And he can span the width of her waist with his massive hand. Stop it. Which is a thing that if you read romance oh, yeah. in the 80s and 90s, yep. you've read that line a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that, you know, it's like, it's imprinted on me. And they meet, he comes, it's the very beginning of the book. He comes and he eats at her, like he's like, it's medieval. And so he's a knight. He's a king's knight. And uh-huh. He comes to her father's house. Her father's a baron or something. And, like, the baron has to give him a room. Sure. And he eats. Free. He comes to have dinner. And she comes down for dinner. And they fall in love, like, on page, like, 10. Whoa. And you're like, oh, my God. And they, like, she turns him into this, like, laughing, wonderful, like, loving man. Huh. And the transition is so perfectly done. And then, of course, everything falls apart, right? And, mm. he, like, there's a war. He has to go to war. There's another woman who used to be his mistress, like, and, of course, like he doesn't love her anymore, but, like, there's yeah, of course. jealousy and anger and then there's hot oil being poured on people. It's bananas. <laughs> That's the way I like him. Um, <laughs> he gets, like, abducted and, like, thrown into a dungeon somewhere and she has to sneak in as a servant and, like, he's filthy and they have sex in the dungeon and nobody cares that they're not clean. <laughs> and it's amazing. Oh, my God. And I read it once a year. Oh, I love that. And I'm sure it probably doesn't hold up for everybody. Like, I'm sure that if you went home and you read this book right now, you'd be like, this is not really modern in right, any way. Right, right, right. Your faves are problematic, Sarah. <laughs> but it is... Perfect. It's the no, perfect book for me because mm-hmm. it's the one that started everything. Oh, I love that. Yeah, we
0: um we read a a Jude Devereaux. We read um A Knight in Shining Armor.
1: Oh. And uh It's yeah <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I know, I know. It's I like mean, it the, was entertaining. I know, the but she, there's a lot of fat shaming in that book. So much, so much fat shaming. But you know what? So it's much child fat shaming. It's kind of delicious, <laughs> I mean, like the is. whole back and forth. Like I just Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem with romance, right? Oh, it's yeah. Like you can sort of there. You re- especially romance, I think, because the old school romances have romance so much mirrors what's happening in society. Absolutely, that it's written, it's coded into all every flaw we have as a society is coded into romances. Yes, definitely. And that that was part
0: of the problem. Because well, one, one of my favorite experiences as a reader reading romance in particular is, is not just watching what's happening on the page, but sort of stepping away from myself and, and watching my own reactions to Mm -hmm. what's happening on the page. Why does that work for me? Why do I hate that? Why do I hate that? I love that, you know, like all of that nonsense. I think romance is perfectly suited to allow you to work through
1: things in a no pressure situation. Right. And I do think that that, I think that's true. It's almost speeding up because I think about, you know, like nine rules, right? We talked yeah. about nine rules. There's a scene in nine rules where it's at the opera and because mm-hmm. um, I didn't know where to go. <laughs> I love knowing that tidbit um, now. <laughs> they, anytime they go to the opera, it's because I was like, what do I do? <laughs> There's a scene in nine rules and Ralston and Callie are arguing yeah. and she goes to hit him, uh-huh. and he ca- he catches her hand and then puts her, like, into the wall uh-huh. and makes out with her. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I just, when I wrote that scene, I, like, I just felt like it's banana sexy, like, I'm so into this. Now I think about it, you know, 10 years later, and I think, I probably wouldn't have written that scene that way. Interesting. You know, like, and I think that that's very much, it's about, like, the world is changing, yeah. and now, like, is that that's um, that's not to say that it's not sexy, and that's not to say that there aren't moments where right. like that scene would would really work for me. Yeah. But when I think back on that scene, I mean, maybe I would. I haven't reread it. I just yeah, don't I was remember gonna it. say the reread was fine. But <laughs> thank you, well, that's good to know. It worked for and me. And I also think like her going after him first yes. probably helps with the power dynamic. Mm-hmm. But the idea of, like, that sort of – and it's, I think, their first kiss, too, or, like, one – well, it's not their first kiss, but it's, like, early in their relationship, Mm -hmm. I think. And he – and I just feel like maybe I wouldn't quite – like, maybe – I'd like to see her put him into a wall, maybe. Ooh. You know, like, I just feel like now power dynamics are such that I wouldn't have written it the same way. And I don't know what else – I mean, I know I've written other scenes that – in over the course of my career that maybe I would write differently. But now – you. It's just because you romance is so of a time. Absolutely. Which is why, and maybe it's bad, but I, it's why I'm able to go back and read those old books and say, like, well, this is problematic, but I still you still work pretty delicious. Yeah. <laughs> um, Because I can also say, like, I see the flaws in exactly. this. Exactly. And I would never recommend, say, A Knight in Shining Armor to be somebody's first romance right. anymore. Right. Absolutely. Um, But certainly if they got really into the genre, I would say, well, now it's time for you to Read the Sarah McLean syllabus, Yes, which is, you know, who you need, the books you need to have read uh-huh. in order to understand where we're all coming from, yeah. where we all stand. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and and that's on your website, right? You have a whole, I mean, you know, it's not, I don't have a syllabus. Okay. I have 180 romances that I really love. Yeah,
0: guys, um, I'm not saying the list is exhaustive, but I will say the list is expansive. And Sarah does a really good job on the website of contextualizing each one. And saying, like, this is what happens. Here's what I liked about it. Maybe you should check it out. Right. I mean, it's everything from paranormal to uh, um, uh, S&M all over the place. Ace romances,
1: arrow romances, Mm -hmm. like, uh, menage. Like, I try really hard to, I've tried very hard to make sure that the list is, there's something for everyone on that list. If you go there and there isn't something for you, please tweet me or Facebook me or send me a message from my website and say, like, hey, Sarah, I don't see any. Of this one. Yeah. I don't know because I feel like they're, it's all pretty much there. But, um, you know, if you want more, send me an email and I'm always happy to recommend. And the best thing is when somebody asks me for something and I don't know anything about it. Like somebody asked me for Ace Romances. Yeah. Not long ago. And I was, I had only read one. Mm-hmm. And so I went out and I was like, I'm going to read every. This is my new mission. Like, somebody give me a list. <laughs> I gathered a list on Twitter and then read like 10 of them. That's great. And then, you know, picked the ones that I like the best for the site. But... Um, I should do a syllabus because I feel like the historical, the arc of the romance novel is long. Yeah. We we would love that. Um, Well, I will do <laughs> it. If you I have will. a spare
0: moment. Because <laughs> I do feel
1: like it's one of those things that we forget, especially now with so many of us coming to romance, so many writers coming to romance via like the Twilight Fifty Shades room. Right? Mm, sure. I feel like we as a genre are, uh, many of us are forgetting or have never had the access, had had the opportunity to read those earlier books like my friend Sierra Simone who wrote Priest uh-huh. um, which is oh I've already downloaded that yeah yeah I mean the because greatest. of your tweet. <laughs> it is I mean the hero Priest that's the conflict it's an erotic romance there's a happily ever after now you know basically the whole story <laughs> of the but it's also tremendously erotic uh-huh. so if you have a problem with blasphemy in any way this is not the book for you right Um and but I would say that it is possibly the greatest inspirational romance I've ever read. Like, I've never read an inspirational romance that has such, like, profound... I've never read a romance that has such a profound inclusion of God um, and faith in it. It's just... It's beautiful. She's a remarkable writer. But um, she's a friend now because I stalked her into being my friend. Oh, I love, I love that. And <laughs> she did not... She is. She had no you know, history in romance. Like she came to romance about five years ago
0: mm-hmm.
1: through contemporaries yeah. largely. So I gave her my, I gave her a syllabus and my great joy is like whenever she finishes like a Judith McNaught novel and it's like, what? That's <laughs> amazing. And also truly problematic. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely.
0: yeah. Do you have any reader catnip? Like, do you have a, a trope or a type of hero or a?
1: Well, I mean, sure. Well, (laughs) You mentioned Unrequited Love in a tweet somewhere. I love Unrequited Love. I feel like very few people do it really well. It's Um, hard. It's really hard to do. It's hard to sustain. Mm -hmm. Um, That book was Naima Simone's Scoring Off the Field, which is terrific. Um, And also kind of Friends to Lovers. Friends to Lovers is not my catnip. So that's why Unrequited Love for me is a tricky. Like, I adore it when it's done really well, but it can't be Friends to Lovers. Yeah. I'm going to just I'm just going to do some I would love that recommendations if you don't mind we have plenty of time right (laughs) no one minds (laughs) Saffron Kent wrote a book called The Unrequited Okay. Um, the hero is a professor the heroine is in college but she's not his student okay um and I just I mean it's very dark and really just hits every every it hits my core like my head it scratches every itch I have Courtney Milan has a novella called Un- Unlocked, which is um, – Unlocked? I think it's called Unlocked. Um, but it is it is unrequited love on the part of the hero and the heroine thinks she's hated him. And the heroine thinks he's hated her Her whole – like he was basically a bully okay, to her. Charlotte Stein has done it in Never Sweeter, which I think is one of the best romances ever written. Mm. Um, so Unrequited Love definitely scratches an itch. I love a truly broken hero. Ooh, um, yeah. So Cressley Cole is a really, I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of Cressley Cole in general. But as far as I'm concerned, like Cressley will never write a book more perfect than The Player, which is the last book in her Game Maker series, which is um, contemporary about Rus- Russian mafiosi. Okay. Um, which is surprising. Will will come as a surprise to anybody who follows me on Twitter because basically all I do is talk about Immortals After Dark, right? <laughs> which also you know has like a, legions of broken heroes but I love like a truly truly like almost unhealable broken hero okay kind of more than anything and enemies lovers okay because yeah. the dialogue is always great it's always oh man
0: yeah it's always so
1: quippy and yeah. brutal
0: a lot of times yeah
1: but like right now I'm writing rivals to lovers Ooh. so I so I'm I'm excited because I haven't actually written an enemies lovers book in a long time I dig so. that yeah all right. Neat.
0: Can I just say, on like the tribe level, going back to that, you sort of epitomize the idea of like author supporting authors for me. You know, I mean, a lot of a lot of landia does it really well. But damn, I just love listening to you talk about your writing, but also just writing that that really does it for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is that I'm a reader first. I yeah. Mean, when I it's a it's a funny joke when I say I write romance to pay for reading romance, but I—it's kind of true. Sure. And if I didn't write romance, I would still read romance voraciously, and I would be members of all—I would be a member of all of these groups. Yeah. But also, a rising tide lifts all boats. Yes. I really believe that, and I feel like when you read something great in the genre, it's important that you shout it out, um, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of books in in the genre, and we need to. We need to support great writing. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm always happy to. And there's nothing that gives me more pleasure than when somebody comes back at me and is like, oh my God, I read Priest and it was so good. (laughs) So yeah.
0: Well, and this is your second career. Is there something in particular that you love about being a a celebrated and famous author that (laughs) like really, really does it for you?
1: Um, That's a great question. Because it's such a neat career. It is a really neat but it's career. it's hard.
0: <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I think it's so I hard. I still
1: pinch myself. Mm. It's still, it's really, um, this is not false modesty. I I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm deeply grateful yeah. for the opportunities that I've had. And I do believe that a lot of publishing is luck um, and right place, right time, right book. But I also continually pinch myself that my work takes me to rooms with people who I respect immensely and mm. who I believe are better writers than me, um, because I feel like I, there's always an opportunity to learn from good writing. Yeah, and so for me, the best thing about it is, you know, being able to ask for a book and get it early, or like, oh yeah. you know be at a conference and you know see. I don't know, Lisa Kleypas in the hallway and say, like, oh, I'm Sarah McLean and have her know who I am, which Mm -hmm. is crazy. And and I'm just I feel very blessed to be a part of the world and even more blessed that people let me talk about it. Oh, Um, sure. This is the best part, the part where I get to talk about romance being awesome. Okay, excellent.
0: I love that. Yeah.
1: You wouldn't be interviewing me if I wasn't a writer. And I have a lot to say about romance. Yes,
0: absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, did I read correctly that there's a little bit of Tom Hardy in the Bare Knuckle Boys? Well, there's
1: a little bit of Tom Hardy in every. Okay, in okay. Every, in every <laughs> ceremony. <laughs> hero. But actually, um, Witt, who is, is the a hero of the next book. Yeah. Yeah. His grunts is, are everything. He is a total grump. And a real grunter, like a solid grunter, does not talk, does not care for people. Yeah, of course he's like deeply wonderful oh, inside. Yeah. He has like a soft nuggety center mm-hmm. that the, the heroine immediately like decides that she's going to, <laughs> to discovers and then decides to exploit. Uh-huh. Wit is very in my if I had to choose a hero who was the most Tom Hardy, yeah. Wit is probably it. Excellent. So stay tuned for Brazen and the Beast. Ooh, yeah, that's book two, guys.
0: Okay, so finally, yes, we always end an episode with a self love recommendation.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have one? I do. Ooh. It's eye cream. Ooh, because I have a four and a half year old, and I discovered that eye cream is a thing that you should have. Mm. I never was really into. I've never been good at like facial re- regimes, mm-hmm. but. I really love Fresh Cosmetics. Okay. And the eye cream that they have, I I have splurged and I've purchased their like ridiculously expensive eye cream, which is called Creme Ancienne. It's made by nuns and smiths <laughs> with Alps, or at least that's what they say. Yes, And it's delightful. And I don't know that it changes anything, but it makes me feel so happy Ooh. when I put it on. And it smells delicious. And basically the entire Fresh Skincare product line is I feel like – I live in a walk-up in Brooklyn. Ah. I have one bathroom in my house. And the hours of like 9.30 to 10.30 are my like facial regime time. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't always take an hour. (laughs) But like sometimes I do a facial mask. I love it. And they're all fresh products. Cool.
0: I have not heard of that. So I'll I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, it's
1: great. They also have these like wonderful bars of soap that smell delicious and take forever to use. So yeah. Awesome.
0: All right. Cool. I I think mine is – Try to power through imposter syndrome at all times if you can.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good one. Yeah, right. That's figure out how to do that and figure, then let me know. I know.
0: And- I know. But when I mean, like I said, when we uh when we were contacted, I was just like, oh, I mean, I'm de- I'm not I am not saying no to this opportunity in any way, oh. like in any universe, but like
1: what? Well, I'm really <laughs> thrilled to talk to you. Yeah, and nice. um, thank you for the podcast.
0: Thank you. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for mm. taking an hour out of your day. I really appreciate with pleasure, it. With pleasure. All right, cool. So quick social media shout out. Mm-hmm. Check out Sarah's website. It's amazing. You'll you've. there's newsletters. There's there's a bunch of links to her past articles. That is Um, And then that's also where your huge list of recommendations is mm-hmm. and then Twitter is at Sarah McLean. do you have any
1: other outlets you want to share? I'm on Facebook but I, it's, I'm facebook.com slash Sarah McLean but okay I'm I'm not great at Facebook All right. I'm much more of a Twitter person. I'm on Instagram I'm Sarah McLean on Instagram but on Twitter um, if you go to my Twitter profile mm-hmm. uh, the pinned tweet is the recommendation list so excellent that's great are ever stuck for a book. Or you can always just tweet me and say, Sarah, I'm stuck for a book. What have you read recently?
0: Cool. That's perfect. Um, Yeah. And then you can reach us on all the places. Instagram is at Heaving Bosoms. Facebook is at Heaving Bosoms podcast. We have the Heaving Bosoms geriatric friendship cult because, you know, we're all going to Golden Girls together someday. And then Twitter is at Heaving underscore bosom. And our our website is... uh, heavingbosomspodcast.com. Ha! All right, so be sure to order Wicked and the Wallflower. You can pre-order it now. It comes out on June 19th, 2018. And as a person who got an advanced copy, I'm definitely going to be buying it as well so I can have it foreverzies. It's a step outside of the ballroom that explores life as an outsider. It gives you glimpses of London as a 99%er, a seedier look at... London than we normally get, perhaps. And it also asks the question would your aspirations change if you could unlock other options? It's full of intrigue, explores the beauty that you can find in darkness, and yet still gives you all of the lady badassery, clever banter, intriguing heartthrobs, and red hot sexy times that you would expect out of Sarah McLean. All right thank you so much thank you um all right guys keep being a badass and love yourself as much as sarah McLean loves romance novels yeah bye (laughs) hey you yes listener you are you loving the show If so, please leave a rating and review in your podcast app. The 90 seconds you take to say something nice not only helps new people find the show, but it makes me super smile over at HBHQ. Also, I've had a few people ask, and the answer is yes. We are still doing the five-star bribe. If you leave us a review with five stars, then we'll do whatever book you want we're real real deep into the list though so it might be a while ah lylus okay back to the show